In the Gospel of Luke, he's been telling us the story of the life, the teaching, the work of Jesus. And Luke, along with the other synoptic Gospels, the synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is sort of off in his own category because John deals with the life of Jesus sort of from a different perspective. But uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all take it from basically a similar perspective. And they focus on the Galilean ministry of Jesus, that which he taught and worked and did all around the region of the Sea of Galilee. So that's where we are here in chapter 5, starting at verse 1. So it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. I just want you to imagine this scene a little bit in your mind. Here's Jesus there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, a very picturesque place. Now, I know the text tells us right there in verse 1, it calls it the Lake of Gennesaret. Don't anybody be confused. This same body of water often went by three names. And the three names are all connected with different you know, cultures and such. But the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias, and the Lake of Gennesaret are all the same body of water. And so there, Jesus is there at that particular body of water, doing his ministry, doing his teaching work. We read there and write, right there in verse 1, the multitude pressed around him to hear the word of God. I mean, doesn't that just kind of warm your soul right there to hear those words? There's a multitude, they're anxious, Jesus is teaching, they're pressing in to hear every word, because they understood that Jesus taught in a manner that was unlike the religious authorities of his day. He he taught with an authority, with a compassion, with an insight that the religious leaders of his day simply did not have. And so this large crowd, it shows the increasing popularity of Jesus' work as a teacher, And the crowd got to be so big there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee that Jesus got into one of the boats and taught the multitude from the boats. And can't you just see how this would happen? There's Jesus, you know, I don't know, 20 yards, 20 meters away from the water, teaching the multitude. And the people just keep coming, more and more people pressing, and he's walking back, back, back. And after about 15 minutes of teaching, he's standing in the water. He's like, well, this, if this keeps going, I'm going to drown. He looks around, and what does he see? He sees one of the boats there. It says, he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's. That's in verse 3. Now think how this was for Simon Peter. Again, when it says Simon there, it's talking about Simon Peter. Think of how privileged Simon Peter must have been to think, Jesus wants to sit in my boat and to carry on the teaching that he's been doing there from the seashore. I mean, it just must have delighted him. And of course you would listen very carefully to the teaching that somebody was doing from your particular boat. So Simon's attention was there. He listened to what Jesus taught. And we're not told for how long Jesus taught. We're not even told exactly what his subject matter was. But whatever it was, it was delightful. It was enthralling. The people were thrilled to hear the word of God coming from the lips of Jesus. But now the message was over. Verse 4, when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon... Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered him and said, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. 
He was this wonderful. He does his job teaching. He speaks. He's done with this message. I guess he noticed maybe the crowd had heard enough or he had said all that he wanted to say, but the message was over. And so now he's sitting in Simon's boat. Now, ladies and gentlemen, as far as I can tell from the text, and I know we're not exactly told, or if we are exactly told, I kind of missed it, but I don't think we're exactly told, but it seems to me that Simon's still in the boat. And as he's still in the boat... Jesus just says to him, sitting in the same boat as Simon, why don't you row out to the deep, cast your nets for a, for a catch of fish? Now, please want you to notice that even if this started early in the morning, by now it's at the very least late morning or maybe even early afternoon. Jesus had taught the multitude for a long time and there were a lot of people on shore. These were no longer ideal conditions for fishing. The the most productive fishing on the Sea of Galilee, as is true with many bodies of water, the most productive fishing on the Sea of Galilee is done at night, where the fish aren't easily spooked, where the sun's reflection doesn't come off the water. I don't know exactly all the reasons. I just know that that's the case. But now it's a long way from night, isn't it? Now you're into midday with lots of people around. The conditions are not good for fishing. But verse 4, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets. I don't know, I can just imagine this as it goes on into the mind of Simon Peter. He's thinking, listen, what am I even doing? This this man doesn't know anything about fishing. I'm the professional fisherman. He's just simply a carpenter. He's a teacher. He's He's a religious man. What does he know about the hard work of fishing? Yet nevertheless, with Jesus in the boat, he said, well, why not? Why don't I do something about this? So this is what he says, verse 5, he answers back. Master, we have toiled all night. Now, by the way, that particular ancient Greek word that he uses there for master, it's unique to Luke's gospel. It has the idea of something like a commander or a leader, or maybe even our modern way of speaking, we'd say boss. Okay, boss, I'll do what you want me to do. I'm willing to take the orders from you in verse 5. He says, we've toiled all night and have caught nothing. Nevertheless, which means despite all of that, at your word, I will let down the net. You know what I think? I think when I think of a passage like this, I think of all the excuses that Peter could have offered to not do this. And there were a lot of excuses. I don't know why I'm so good at thinking up excuses, but I'm pretty skilled at it. How about this one? I worked all night and I'm tired. Now you want me to work all day? How about this one? You know, I know a lot more about fishing than a carpenter does, and I know that these conditions aren't good. How about this one? The best fishing is at the nighttime, not in the daytime. How about this one? All the crowds and all the loud teaching might have scared the fish away. Yeah, thanks. We'll go fishing now after you've been shouting at the crowd for the last two hours, Mr. Preacher Man. Or how about this one? We've already washed our nets. They already had, had they not? They were washing their nets when Jesus came. No, I don't know much about net washing, but all I know is that if you washed your nets once, do you want to do it again? Or finally, they could have given up this excuse. They could have said, listen, that Jesus fellow, he may know religion, but he doesn't know a lick about fishing. There's all kinds of excuses that Peter could have thought of at that particular moment, but there was something about the fact that Jesus was in the boat and something about the authority and the presence of Jesus that made him say something really remarkable. And I want you to think carefully about these words that Peter said. He said this, 
at your word, I will let down the net. Now, that was a tremendous statement of faith by Peter. By the way, I just want to remind you, this was not the first time that Peter had met Jesus. Just in the previous chapter, we saw that Jesus went to Peter's house and did what? Healed his mother-in-law. It brought up the whole issue of Peter being married, and that's a whole other subject. But look, I'll just say this. It's not the first time that Peter met Jesus, yet he says, no, there's something about this man that's different. There's something about this man that gives him the authority to tell me what to do. Jesus, at your word, I will let down the net. And so what did he do? He did it. Why? He did it at your word. I want you to think about how much has been accomplished in this world at your word. And I don't mean your word. Who's the your I'm speaking of? Jesus, God in heaven. Think of all that has happened in this world at your word, speaking of God himself. At your word, there was light. At your word, the sun and the moon and the stars and the planets were created. At your word, life came to this earth. At your word, creation is bound together even to the present moment and sustained. And at your word, empires rise and fall and history unfolds according to God's eternal plan. To say, at your word, says a lot. And Peter trusted in Jesus. He trusted in his word. I think the point of application is pretty plain right there, isn't it? Isn't this our great duty? Do we not have a word from Jesus that is binding upon us to trust? That we are responsible to grab on, to understand, to hold on, and say, Jesus, at your word, make it real in my life. At your word, I'm forgiven. At your word, I'm free from this bondage. At your word, uh, I have power in my life, power to overcome sin. At your word, my broken heart is healed, and on and on. But there's something very powerful in that, that Peter was attaching himself towards. Well, do you know the result? Look at it, verse 6, it's really beautiful, isn't it? And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. You can picture that in your mind, can't you? Now, what I think is really interesting about this, and I picture it in my mind, don't you think that Jesus was helping bring in those nets? Do you think Jesus was just sitting in the boat filing his nails? No. He sees it and he's delighted. He goes, oh, you you trusted my word. Here's a blessing. You let me use your boat. You gave something to me, Peter. Now let me give you something far more wonderful. I'll give you all the fish you ever wanted. You had a lousy, stinky night of fishing. And you know, there's just nothing worse than that. Now, I'll tell you the only thing worse than having a bad fishing experience. It's when your livelihood is fishing and you have a bad fishing experience. And that was Peter, was it not? There's Simon in the midst of this whole situation. I, I, it's, everything's gone wrong. And now, now the nets are coming in and they're laughing. They're giggling. Can't believe how much fish is coming in. Jesus is in there helping them bring it in. It says that they caught a great number of, of fish. Peter didn't make those excuses. And his faith in Jesus was very well rewarded. Now, there's one reason why Peter did this. It was he believed the word of Jesus. And therefore, his work was directed by Jesus. 
Now, this is sort of a dear thing to my heart because I remember me being very young in ministry, and I can't even tell you exactly how old I was. I, I, I would almost guarantee I was still in my teens. I can't promise it, but I was probably still in my teens, serving the Lord even as a young man. But early in my ministry, I heard Pastor Chuck Smith from Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, give a message on this text, and it has stuck with me to the present day. And this was the title of the, he titled it Directed Service. And what he did was he made the contrast between when you do work on your own and the contrast between that and when your service is truly directed by Jesus Christ. And there's Peter fishing all night, and nothing's really happening of it. But then what? The next day, even in the most unlikely of circumstances, Jesus directs his service. So you go cast your net over there, and it sounds crazy. It shouldn't work, but it does. And Pastor Chuck, I'll never forget, because Pastor Chuck shared a lot of the story of his own life, how for years, some 17 years, he labored in ministry and felt like his work was never really directed of the Lord and gave up so many times and on and on, the discouragements and frustrations, until he came to the place where he's just, okay, Lord, you direct my service. I'm done trying to twist your arm to get on my program. Why don't I just try to sense what you're doing and I'll get along with that? What a difference it is when you really let the Lord direct your service. And that's what Peter did. He cast his net over at this particular place, and the harvest was just remarkable. No more excuses. No more trying to, you know, find a way around trusting God and His Word. I'm just going to trust it and look at what the Lord does. And it was wonderful, wasn't it? What a great sermon. I like what my old friend uh, John Trapp, I say old friend, he's my friend in a book, He's been dead about 400 years. But the Puritan commentator, John Trapp, he says this. He says, here the dumb fishes do clearly preach Christ to be the Son of God. It's like every fish in the net said, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. I, I didn't want to swim in that net, but Jesus made me do it. Look at it now, verse 7, it says, so they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. The harvest was so great The work was so wonderful that they needed help. There were not enough hands on deck to bring in the harvest, to bring in the very full nets. So they say, come, help us do the work. Now, you know what this reminds me of, a sort of a spiritual illustration? It reminds me of some of the study I've done through some of the great workings of God in history and what some people call the second great awakening. There's different names that people use, but you could just call it the second great awakening, this great work that God did, especially out on the American frontiers, starting in the 1790s. Out in the area, especially of Kentucky and that kind of area, which was totally wild frontier in those days, God did an amazing work among the people then, especially through a man named James McGrady. I wish I had more time to tell you about James McGrady tonight. He's a remarkable man. You know one of the things that was remarkable about James McGrady? Some people today can draw a crowd because they're so good-looking. You know, there's publicity photos like, wow, what a good-looking man or what a good-looking woman. And that James McGrady literally would draw crowds because he was so ugly. People would see him walking down the street and goes, you know, man, would you look at that guy? What does he do? He's a preacher. Really? A preacher that ugly? And people would just come to see that the preacher looked so bad. Well, listen, James McGrady did his work preaching out on that wild frontier of Kentucky. 
And in the late 1790s, actually it was the year 1799, he said that his work out in that area was for the most part weeping and mourning with the people of God. He pastored three tiny churches that met in what we would call shacks out on the frontier. And there are these little churches in these little shotgun shacks out in the middle of nowhere, but it's frontier boom time and people are wicked People are making money. Progress is being made in every way but spiritually. And there's a wickedness and a lawlessness to the area. He said it was like living in Sodom and Gomorrah out on the rough, lawless, and often godless frontier. So what did he do? He started prayer meetings. And he also got his congregations praying for him. This is what he told his congregations. He said, I want you to pray for me for a half hour before you go to bed on Saturday night that God would do a great work on Sunday morning. He got his people praying, and something happened. In 1800 came an extraordinary outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and so many people started coming to Jesus Christ that McGrady put a call out as broadly as he could get it. And this is what he said, quote, Any preacher of any kind who loves the Lord Jesus, come and help me. Isn't that fantastic? Any preacher of any kind... If you love the Lord Jesus, come and help me. And people did come and help him and started some of the great frontier revival works of the early part of the 19th century. It reminds me of this, that that they had to call their partners to the boat to come and bring in, and that's what we want to do. We want to say, Lord, what is the harvest you're bringing in? And when we need help, please have our other brothers and sisters of many different areas and many different persuasions come and help us. If you love the Lord Jesus, if you're committed to his word, then we have a common ground and let's work together. Well, you would think that after that, Peter's first meeting would be with his accountant. I mean, look, this is a big business day for him, is it not? Instead, look at what happens starting now at verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. Now, I find this to be absolutely remarkable. Peter and his companions were experienced fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. Surely they had had big catches before. This was nothing unusual in that sense, to have a good fishing day. Don't you think many times Peter came home to the wife there in Capernaum and said, wow, what a great night we had last night. But nevertheless, there was something about what happened at this time in the place, the extent of the catch, the cooperation from the other people, the unlikeliness of the surroundings. You'd say, listen, I've had good nights fishing but I've never had an afternoon when some guy's been shouting over the water for two hours with all those people around in such adverse circumstances to catch that kind of haul in those kind of circumstances at the word of that man, it makes me bow down and worship him. Ladies and gentlemen, I just want to remind you that a short time before this, Peter was bedside when Jesus healed his mother-in-law. It's not like he had never seen anything miraculous from the hands of Jesus before. Yet there was something so special, so powerful, so unique about this whole circumstance that what did it make Peter do? Look at what it says, verse 8. It says he fell down at Jesus' knees. This miracle of the blessed catch 
made, G- made Peter worship Jesus and surrender himself to him. And then he said some very precious words. You saw it right there in verse 8. He said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. When Peter saw and understood the great power of Jesus as it was displayed in Jesus' expertise in an area where rightfully he should have known nothing about this. What does a carpenter or a preacher know about fishing? Just about nothing. But something about the whole surrounding made Peter understand his own spiritual bankruptcy compared to Jesus himself. Peter knew it. He had hardly met Jesus, yet he knew some very important things about Jesus. Just think about that amazing statement right there. Look at what he understands about Jesus already. First of all, Peter knew that Jesus was Lord. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. I'll tell you what else he knew about himself. Peter knew himself to be a man. I'm a man. There's something different about you, Jesus. I can tell you're a man, but somehow you're more than a man. And then you could say this, and I hope you understand what I mean when I say this. If Peter looked at Jesus and saw someone who was in some way more than a man, he looked at himself and he understood there was somehow less than a man there. Because how did Peter describe himself? You saw it in the verse. It's right there in verse 8. Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. I know myself, Jesus, and I see something about you. I see your power. I see your weight. I see your glory. There's something different about you, and I'm a sinful man. And all of this allowed Peter to make himself a humble man before the Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, that's a fantastic combination. To understand that Jesus is Lord, to see yourself as a human being, as a sinful human being, and to allow it all to make you humble before the Lord. It's a theme I try to remember a lot in my personal life. I, I, I guess I've got to leave it up to the Lord and others to decide how successful I am with it. Elijah, I know there's something. You need to stay humble. This is the verse that I cannot get away from. It's been impressed in my mind for decades in my Christian life. I cannot get away from this. I don't want to get away from it. But I won't say that it haunts me, but it's always there. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And there's something about Peter crouched down at the feet of Jesus. I don't know if he was crying, but he was shaking at his knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. There's something very moving about all of that. And look at what Jesus' response was. Before I look at Jesus' response, how about this? Was Peter's prayer good there? I think that's a good prayer. But how about this? Can I dare to improve upon Peter's prayer? May I improve upon Peter's prayer? Just I'll let you decide if it's an improvement or not. Here's an improvement upon Peter's prayer. This one right here. Come nearer to me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Can you receive that? Can you realize you, who you are, in your humility, and just say to the Lord, come nearer to me, for I am a sinful person, O Lord. Well, let's look at Jesus' response, verse 10. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid, From now on, you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. 
You see, when Jesus told Simon, or spoke to Simon, I should say, he said two things. First of all, do not be afraid. From what I understand, the phrasing, the original Greek, really has the idea of stop being afraid. In other words, okay, Peter, I appreciate it. I appreciate your trembling hands there at me now. Stop it. Stop being afraid. Secondly, he says, don't worry about it. From now on, you will catch men. Now, think about it. I got to take it that Peter was a fairly successful person in his business. I don't know if he was wildly successful. He has three associates. Uh, You know, the guys there with him, uh, he has associates in his work. I'm taking it that he's at least moderately successful. He knew something about catching fish, but this is what he understood. He understood that with the direction of Jesus, everything would be different. Now, transfer that over to the idea of catching men. You see, you, you can do something in your own strength, in your own wisdom, but nothing compared to what it is when your work is really directed by Jesus. Jesus said to Peter, I want you now to catch men. And what did they do? Verse 11, it's really remarkable. It says this, they forsook all and followed him. They brought the boats to shore and they forsook all. What's included in the all there? All the fish they just caught. Now, isn't that strange? Isn't that strange? Why didn't Peter say something like this to Jesus? Okay, Jesus, this is amazing. Another couple weeks of fishing like this and we're set. Then we can really accomplish it. No, it wasn't that at all. He said, no, I'm going to forsake all and follow you. Now, they followed him in the way that students followed their rabbi in those days. You see, in some ways, you could say that Jesus offered them a traditional education at the feet of a rabbi. This is what rabbis did back then. When you wanted to train other people, you didn't send them off to a seminary or even to a Bible school. What you did was you had them basically shadow somebody. They would learn, but they would learn not so much on a classroom model, but as an apprenticeship model. That's just the structure that they used back then. So he says, okay, we want to enlist in your school, Jesus. We want to follow you. We want to recognize you as our rabbi. And that's what they did. So friends, there's going to come up some more here. We just have a few along the way. Later on in the chapter, we're going to see a guy named Matthew or Levi get called. But right now, you just have a few disciples following Jesus. Peter or Simon, his brother Andrew, he's in the picture, though Luke doesn't mention him. And then James and John. You have these four following Jesus. And they're going to follow him all the way, all the way through the book of Acts. This is the beginning of something very, very good. So let's see what happens as they go on here. Verse 12. And it happened when he was in a certain city that, behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus, and he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now, can I just sort of put myself in the sandals of Peter and Andrew and James and John following Jesus? Okay, hot dog, Jesus, we're following you. And they're thinking it's all going to be about tremendous teaching and all the wonderful things. And one of the first encounters they have was with a disgusting leper. And when I say disgusting, I mean disgusting. Because notice something, Luke, who was a physician, tells us in verse 12, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus. Now this is what you should know. That when the Bible uses the term leprosy, it's actually using a term that was used to describe several different diseases. 
Some of them would be as bad as what we might call eczema or psoriasis. So you might say, well, that's not so bad. The guy has a bad case of psoriasis. No, that's not the issue. When Luke uses the terminology, he was full of leprosy. He's deliberately tipping us off that Jesus is meeting up with a man who was full of what we would call today in the modern world, Hansen's disease, which is a terrible flesh-eating defiguring of body, and mind I say this, not only a body, but of spirit. It defigures a person on the outside and on the inside, at least normally it does, until that person dies. It's a horrible disease. You know, from time to time, I put pictures. I know I'm not very good at the picture thing on the PowerPoint, but I put up pictures from time to time. So what did I do in this teaching? I, I did a little Google search. Leprosy. Google images. I don't recommend it. It's awful. I said, I can't show pictures like this. If people want to see, they can do the search themselves. But friends, you're talking about things that make people feel and seem grotesque. Let me read you something from William Barclay, who does an excellent job of, of historical interpretation or research here. He says here, quoting, In Palestine, there were two kinds of leprosy. There was one which was rather like a very bad skin disease, and it was the less serious of the two. There was one in which the disease, starting from a small spot, ate away the flesh until the wretched sufferer was left with only the stump of a hand or a leg. It was literally a living death. And because of this, leprosy was seen, first of all, as being an unbelievable curse of God, and anybody who was a leper was an utter social outcast. Rabbis used to brag about how poorly they treated lepers. One man said, whenever I see a leper on the street, I start throwing rocks at him until he runs away. Another man said, I won't even buy an egg on a street if there's a leper on the same street. They were so hated, so reviled, that again, it was very, very significant, not just in body, but in soul. And for these reasons... Leprosy was considered to be a picture of sin and its effects. It's contagious. It's terribly debilitating. It corrupts the victim, and it makes him essentially dead while alive. So lepers were rejected and scorned. Nevertheless, this leper did what? This leper came to Jesus. My friend, that's wonderful, that this leper took the initiative to do it. This leper knew how terrible his problem was, yet he still came to Jesus. He knew that everybody would have considered his condition hopeless, because that was the other thing about leprosy. It never got better. Never. It wasn't these things, well, you know, the leper got better. It just didn't work that way. If you had leprosy, you were done with. He had no one who would take him to Jesus. He had no previous example of Jesus healing a leper. He couldn't read, the, oh yeah, Jesus, this guy heals lots of lepers. No, as far as we know in the gospel account, this is the very first one. He had no promise from Jesus that Jesus would heal him. He had no invitation from Jesus or the disciples. And he must have felt ashamed and all alone in the midst of that crowd. Yet what did he do? Verse 12 tells us that he came to Jesus and he said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. That's glorious. He had not a single doubt about the ability of Jesus to heal. 
His only question was whether or not Jesus was willing. But ladies, that's a pretty big deal to look at a man and say, look, I believe you can cure the incurable. You can do what nobody else can do. My condition is absolutely impossible with man, but I believe it's possible with you. Leprosy was so hopeless in the ancient world that healing a leper was compared to raising the dead. Yet the leper said, Jesus, all I need is for you to be willing. So the leper wanted more than healing, though. Did you see what it said in the verse? Did you notice that? Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Isn't this interesting on a few levels? Now, first of all, I'm sure he had reference to his biological condition. I I don't have any doubt that that was the first and foremost on his mind. But there was also something else. The leper was terribly stigmatized as being unclean. That's what lepers had to cry out as they walked through the streets. You see, because a leper would defile everybody around them, they had to announce their presence so that the good, decent people could get out of the way. So what did lepers cry out as they went down the street? Unclean! Unclean! This man wanted more than physical healing. He wanted to feel clean. He wanted to feel whole again. He said, Lord, if you're willing, you can do it. Let me give you another quote from William Barclay. Barclay quoted a man named Dr. A.B. MacDonald, who was in charge of a leper colony. And this is what he says, quote, The leper is sick in mind as well as body. For some reason, there is an attitude to leprosy different from the attitude to any other disfiguring disease. It is associated with shame and horror, and it carries in some mysterious way a sense of guilt, shunned and despised, Frequently do lepers consider taking their own lives, and some do. That's what this man lived with. Verse 13. If you mark up your Bible, you've got to mark verse 13. And he put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing be cleansed. Isn't that beautiful? I'm willing. That that was the only thing you wondered about. Jesus smiling big. You don't have any doubt about my power on this one. Leper, no, no doubt about your power. I just want to know if you're willing. And Jesus, oh yes, I'm willing. And then he reached out and he touched him and he was cleansed. And friends, you realize how glorious this was? First of all, because it was absolutely forbidden to touch a leper. Absolutely forbidden. You could not touch a leper without becoming ceremonially unclean If you're ceremonially unclean, you couldn't participate in the rituals of Israel. You couldn't go to synagogue. You couldn't do these things until you went through all the ceremonies a certain amount of time for your ceremonial purification. You couldn't touch lepers. It was absolutely forbidden. This man had not received a loving touch from anybody for the longest time. And Jesus could have healed this man in any conceivable way. Jesus could have said a word and the man would be healed. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus could have thought a thought and the man would have been healed. But what did he do? He said, no, you need a touch. When's the last time you had a loving touch? And he put his hand on him. He didn't just say, you're healed. What did he say? You're clean. You're cleansed. Friends, how wonderful is that? For that man to receive that at that moment, he's clean. And immediately, it says, the leprosy left him. Now, you know, it was against the ceremonial laws for Jesus to touch him. 
But here's the problem. As soon as Jesus touched him, he destroyed the evidence of the crime, didn't he? (laughs) Jesus could say, leper? What leper? I didn't touch a leper. As soon as I touched him, he was clean. And he was. Verse 14. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them just as Moses commanded. Don't tell anybody. Jesus was very conscious of timing in his ministry. And he knew that he had a certain amount of timing until the time that he went to the cross. There's a lot of different reasons for that, but I won't discuss them now. But Jesus was just very conscious of timing in his ministry. He did not want messianic fervor and expectation to get ahead of things. And so there were many times when Jesus healed somebody. Now, once you keep this down, keep this quiet, let's not make this so public. I don't want the fervor to get going too much. He told him to keep it quiet. Verse 14, but go and show yourself to the priest. Jesus commanded the man to give a testimony to the priest And friends, that was a remarkable testimony because in the book of Leviticus chapter 14, there are special ceremonies that are to be conducted on the cleansing of a leper. I won't get into what they are. They're fairly complicated. But the the priest would have to open up the scroll. And can you imagine him blowing the dust off of that scroll? We've never done this ceremony before. A leper's healed somewhere? This is crazy. We're doing this ceremony. We never do this ceremony. But it made the man's healing public in the right way. Now look at verse 15. However, the report went around concerning him all the more, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed of him of their infirmities. The news of the remarkable healing of the leper became widely known. Now Luke doesn't specifically tell us that it was the leper who made it known. But Mark in his gospel rats the guy out. It was the leper who did it. You know, I just find this very fascinating, don't you? Come on, you got to admit, this is a strange thing. That the man Jesus told, don't say anything, he went out and he told everybody. And us, to whom Jesus says, go out and tell everybody... We often tell nobody. That's just strange, isn't it? Lord, help us. Lord, help us. But it's beautiful. Verse 15, great multitudes came together to hear and be healed of him by their infirmities. You see, Jesus is making it clear, I'm the Messiah and I have these credentials because I heal. Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5 says this. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For waters shall burst forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. That's Isaiah prophetically speaking of the ministry of the Messiah. And one of the great reasons why Jesus did his miraculous ministry was to announce, I'm here as the Messiah. But please, I want you to understand something about Jesus' miraculous ministry. Even though it was real, even though it was massive, even though it announced who he was, in some sense, in the modern, excuse me, in the mind of the people who saw that ministry, it was small potatoes. This is how they thought. You have all this power as the Messiah, you can call down fire from heaven. 
Why aren't you doing some absolutely awesome miracles against the Roman legions that occupy our lands? That's the kind of miracle we want to see. Why don't you do some miracles like that? Miracles of power, miracles of overcoming the oppression, on and on. And they say, you use this miraculous power to heal a couple of lepers? So what? You minister to some blind folk? Okay, great, we still got more blind people. But Jesus wanted to show something. He wanted to show that the power of the Messiah is here, and it's here to compassionately minister to each individual hurting heart. That's true today. He's here. And he's here to speak to each individual heart. Let's finish with verse 16. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Isn't that great? In this season of increasing popularity with Jesus' ministry, when the crowds are bigger, when the pressures are greater, what did he do? He often went into the wilderness to pray. The demands of life pushed Jesus to more prayer. Jesus would have been the first guy to say, or hypothetically, I'm so busy I don't have time to pray. Instead, he turned it around. What did he say? I'm so busy I must pray. So he often withdrew into the wilderness to pray. So should it be for us. We talk a lot about it, about how our world is so pressure-packed and so filled with, you know, stress and different this and, oh, you know, our great-grandparents, they knew nothing on and on and on. I don't know if it's true or not. But this is what I do know. The greater the stressors and the pressures of life, it should drive us to the throne of Jesus all the more. It's a good point for us to end. We'll pick up the rest of the chapter next time. But friends, uh, let's pray right now, and then we'll have Troy come on up and do with some questions. Father in heaven, we think, Lord Jesus, about how um, Peter knew that he was an unclean man and you called him to be a fisher of men. That leper was an unclean man and you healed him, you transformed him, and you used him. Lord, To one degree or another, every one of you is before you this evening as an unclean person. But we believe, Lord, we believe that the blood of Jesus and his work on the cross is sufficient to cleanse us from all sin. Even to make us, Lord, according to the promise, white as snow. We believe it, Lord, that though our sins were as scarlet, we can be made white as snow by trusting in who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross. So Jesus, touch us and we'll be clean. Touch us with the work of your cross at Calvary and we'll be cleansed. And then help us to give you glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.